Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Point Church. If you have your Bibles, please open to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can continue worshiping you uh, through the studying of your word. We've, uh, we've gone a great distance in Hebrews, and we've covered difficult ground, and uh, we've seen this uh, thread of thought throughout Hebrews. We know that these were our brothers and sisters in Christ that lived following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but while the temple was still up and running, and they faced great pressures and, and, and great pulls uh, to depart from the new covenant, this, this grace covenant, to return under the law. And, and while we are in a different setting and a different time, we experience the same pull uh, to go back, to, to place ourselves under the law, to place ourselves under an economy of works, trying to earn favor with you. And so, Lord, we ask that as we study the word today, as we seek to know you uh, closer and more intimately, we pray that by your spirit, the word of God would come alive to us. We ask that uh, you would help us to understand what happened then and how it transcends time and the principles that relate to us today. Uh, We ask that you would help us to be a people of grace, um, that we would um, receive the grace that you have extended to us, that you've pleaded with us to walk under. Um, we need you in this uh, journey, in this life. And so we ask, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would propel us in our relationship with you. May we stir one another to good works uh, this day. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It is a translation that's very wooden and will fill the woodenness uh, today. Um, It's a very literal translation, word for word, and so we'll make sense of it by the end. Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, straighten the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, Even if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, 
so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We uh, commit this time to you and ask you for your help as we work through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, to sort of ease in, to get our bearings straight, uh, Hebrews was really um, more of a sermon uh, intended to be delivered at once. We take it bit by bit, portion by portion, and so it's very easy to lose sight of the whole. And so I have this challenge of trying to keep the whole of Hebrews um, sort of before us as we attack the individual parts. Um, Often between the first and the second service, we get a radically different sermon. And so I practiced on the first service today and restructuring everything now. Um, So Hebrews begins, chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And then he continues. So he said, God in the past spoke in many portions in many ways through all sorts of means. But at this present day, God is speaking to us through his son. From there, uh, the bulk of Hebrews is uh, making this case of Jesus's superiority, that there is nothing that is greater than him. No offering, no sacrifice, um, not angels, not Moses, no one. There is nothing that when placed against Jesus is greater than Jesus. We know that the recipients of this letter, as I alluded to in my prayer, were uh, were believers in Christ probably around A.D. 65 to 68. This is significant because uh, Christ was uh, probably executed in around A.D. 33 or so. Um, the church began to flourish. It began to experience great persecution. It would continue to build. Um, there was a lot of suffering along the way. And as we approach A.D. 68, the, the pressure and the suffering was great, and it was really twofold. Um, on one side of the coin, those Jewish believers who have decided to follow Jesus as a Messiah, they began to experience persecutions from their fellow countrymen. Uh, those uh, Jews who still lived under the law, who still had the temple, whose priests still existed that were still going on with the traditions that had been going on for many years before. Um, Persecution was also arising from Rome. Um, uh, At this point, those completed Jews that we would call them, the Jews that had decided to follow the Messiah, um, they still experienced a a bit of protection, a bit of security, um, because they were just viewed as sort of a sect within Judaism. But as Nero's power and craziness sort of like bubbled to the surface, there there began to be this separating. And the separating would fully occur in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Um, The Jews were scattered and great persecution arose. And so this this, uh, not temptation, this, this persecution is reaching its bubbling over point at the time of writing. These Jewish individuals who had decided to follow Jesus as the Messiah, they're being, they're getting pressure and persecution from all sides. There was a temptation from Rome to depart from following Jesus. There was a temptation from their family members and the, the Jews who were still uh, following under the ways of the old covenant. They were, they were encouraging them to come back. So the author of this book is reminding them who Jesus was and assuring them of his majesty, his greatness, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. He pleads with them to continue listening to the voice of Jesus. He pleads with them to hold course. He pleads with them that to depart from Jesus is to depart from the greatest gift that you could ever receive. There was no sense going back under this substandard old covenant of sacrifice that continued to happen over and over and over again. 
So as we fast forward through the book of Hebrews, we come to the great chapter of Hebrews 11, the, the, the heroes of the faith. He's encouraging them to continue to walk by faith. Don't stumble back into to works to endure, to stand under the trial and persecutions that were coming. This great list of heroes goes through chapter 11. We come down to chapter 12, which we covered last week. Uh, I've learned that Joe's going to cover this same verse uh, next week, so I'll be able to challenge him if he's wrong on any point. Um, Joe does have a great laugh. He is, it's infectious. Um, And we come to chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So he says, you have all of these witnesses. They're surrounding us. It's, it's, it's like you're in a coliseum and you're running your race before the Lord. And they're, uh, they're, they're in the audience kind of cheering you on. Now, last week I made reference that I don't think that this is that they have the ability or capacity to look down and actually see you. But the idea is that their memories are uh, firm within your mind. I mentioned my buddy Tommy Retzer, who was killed in Afghanistan back in 2013, that, that, that many years have gone by, but still when I work out and still when I'm doing stuff, I still have him talking smack in my brain. And, and his memory stays there. As I do things in the church, I have George and Evie Farrington, who, who, who he was the pastor of this church in the 60s, was here when I first started. And, and very much these that have gone before me, their, their memory, their race, their example of faith, it, it, it's at the forefront of my thinking and it fires me up to run my race. Um, and that's what he's asking them to do, to remember these great saints, to rem- remember the race that they ran, to remember the great trials and persecutions that they endured. And we likewise are to do the same, keep our eyes on Jesus. They were going through difficulty, and it would be very easy for them to consider the difficulties that they were uh, going through to be sort of accredited to sort of spiritual warfare. Oh, Satan's on the attack. Satan's doing all this stuff. Well, maybe that was true. But in verse 3, he says, For consider him, that's Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet shed blood, and you're fighting against sin. And then he goes into this whole changing their perspective, that the trials that they might be going through are not from Satan, but are actually the hand of God. And that the trials might actually be the discipline of God molding them, shaping them into Christ's image. He says in verse 10, For they disciplined us, speaking of earthly fathers, for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, the Father in heaven, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So he speaks of their trials. He changes their perspective. The the difficulties that they're trying to get out from under, he says, don't try to get out from under it. The difficulties that you're going through, these trials, if it's sin, you're supposed to get rid of it because you're running a race. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. These are the trials you're going through. This actually might be God's hand training you in righteousness, training you to produce fruit in your life. And these trials, we're so quick to try to get out from under them. He says, no, you stand under them and allow God's hand to do the work in your life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, he tells a story about a dog that I think we can all relate to. Regardless of the level of training, we've all had a dog, I'm assuming, or the majority of us, I should say. You can't ever say all. You put a dog on a leash, and you walk, and inevitably you'll come to a pool. And I don't know what it is about dogs, but the dog will decide to go to the other side of the pool, and now you're stuck on one side, the dog's stuck on the other side, and you're connected by a leash. And you want the dog to come back around to your side, but... And, and you both want to go forward, but the dog insists on going forward and maybe tangling you up around the post or whatever. And C.S. Lewis says, you know, some dogs have some training and you can just kind of tug and the dog will come back around and go forward. Other dogs will fight and fight and fight. And before you know it, you're all hogtied to the post. 
You both have the same aim. You're trying to get the dog to come around. The dog wants to go forward. You want to go forward. But the dog thinks it knows best, and you actually know best. And he says that we're like this with God, that we, we want to go the direction that God wants us to go. But we often resist his hand in guiding us and, and trying to get us to that same place because we think that we know better. Um, We were created to worship God. It doesn't always come natural to us. God in his goodness to us will train us. He'll use discipline. He'll, he'll love on us. He'll, um, he'll put us through painful things in order to create a worship within us that is, um, Something that we couldn't get any other way. Uh, what it says in verse 11 is all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. I love the, uh, the rawness in this, the, just the realness. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so now we come to our passage. Therefore, as a result of this, he's going to give us a, I don't want to say a laundry list of things, but as a result of these truths, we're running our race. We're keeping our eyes on Jesus. There are things, sin in our life that we need to get rid of. Um, there's just in our flesh and our need to grow, God's hand of discipline is going to come upon us. It demonstrates that we're his children. He He, he makes... Or he doesn't hold punches. That it, it doesn't make it sound like it's easy. It's it's difficult. There's a couple words that I want to point out that sort of govern how I have broken up today's passage. We see in verse 15 the phrase "see to it." In verse 25, we see that same phrase "see to it." Um, when I look at this passage as a whole, I I see um, that there's a bunch of "see to it." I I think of when I go out of town and somebody comes to watch the house or I leave and there's some things that I want the kids to do. It's like, hey, I'm leaving and while I'm gone, see to it that you take care of these things. See to it that you water the plants. See to it that you uh, get the eggs from the chickens coop. See to it that you feed the chickens. See to it that you uh, water uh, the chickens. Uh, there's a whole list. Um, anybody want to watch my house while I go out of town? I just gave you the list of what needs to get done. But, but there's like a, a see to it list. And so now that there's this See to it list as a result, and we need to be careful coming to this because if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, this isn't like a see to it list so that you would get right with God. The, the context he's speaking, when he says therefore, he's speaking to those that were under great persecution, under great trials for their commitment to Christ. And in their commitment to Christ, they were struggling, they were being tempted to drift away, they were tempted to walk away. And so I need to caution us that when we read this list, this is, this is a list that is given to those that have committed their lives to Jesus, who have trusted Jesus with their lives. This isn't to, to earn our relationship with God. This isn't to give us access to him. This is in response. And so there's a bunch of C2-its, and I'm going to add C2-its that aren't there. Verses 12 through 13, we see our first C2-it. And in this see to it, what we see is strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, we can read this both individually and collectively as the body. This is written to a body of people. Um, I think that the essence of this is the idea of keeping your head up Standing firm, going the distance. The, the Christian life is not a sprint, it is a marathon. And it can get difficult at times. And he's saying, keep your head up. Keep your grip strong. Keep your legs strong. Even though your hands are going to grow weary, your legs are going to grow weary. The context, we're running our race. Even though you're growing a bit despondent and you're going through a difficult season, don't lose hope. Because the God you serve, where he's going, is a consuming fire. He is unshakable. So don't grow weary. Um, 
you'll set yourself up for a terrible thing if you think that walking and living for the Lord is an easy thing, that, it, that it's a bed of roses that never comes with trials or setbacks or discouragement or frustrations. The ministry is a very uh, sobering and difficult task. On Thursday night, there was a banquet for Alternatives Women's Center, a ministry we support in Escondido. They made a big announcement that I'm going to have to begin uh, retraining myself. They're no longer Women's Alternative Center. They are Alternatives Medical Clinic uh, because they're widening widening their net. They uh, they realize that a conception isn't just a female problem or situation. A problem, I'm using problem from the context of what they go through. So they want to reach both men and women. And so they've adjusted their name to Alternatives um, Medical Clinic. They had Abby Guess, or not Abby Guess, that's, that's a, Abby Johnson. <laughs> it's another, um, this Abby Johnson speak, it was a, it was a powerful, moving, uh, just a powerful night. And I, um, yesterday I, I, Tammy's a friend of mine, this, I don't know her title, it's either COO or CEO. It starts with a C and then there's a couple other letters. She's the head boss woman. And, and I used to serve with her on the board, and she rose to sort of um, to lead the organization. I sent her a text yesterday, and I said, you know, Tammy, I'm, just, I'm still just thinking about what I saw on Thursday night, and I am just so proud of you, and I'm, I'm so honored to be considered your friend, and I think you're doing an outstanding job, and I'm excited about the future of um, Alternatives Medical Clinic. And, and she wrote back, she's like, I can't tell you, how much I needed to hear that right now because I'm just going through it like a difficult time. And, and I was like, well, look, I'm preaching a message. I know it's hard. And I said, keep your head up, Tammy. Go the distance. Keep serving the Lord and he's going to do good things. Then from this, keep your head up. Keep your path straight. Keep going the distance. He goes on to say in verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification which no one will see the Lord. Now, I need to straighten out this, this woodenness of the, the second half of this verse. So what he says is, pursue peace with all men. And then he says, and the sanctification of the holiness. And if you have another translation like the NIV or New Living Translation or something more that expresses the heart of it, it says that your sanctification actually is... Uh, the light to the lost world, those that don't know Christ, those that don't know this God, um, through your holiness, through your sanctification, um, this is how they'll see his holiness. And, and there's a strain here, this, this pursuing. It could be a word that would describe an animal in full pursuit after something. You know, if you watch the National Geographic and you see a lion going after, you know, the innocent little gazelle or whatever, and you see its muscles just like ripping, and like with and when they do it in slow motion, and you can see the strain. The word literally is is the term that flexing of muscles that you can see. It's it's the idea of of um, to chase after something with the intention of catching it. And so what does he say to pursue? What does he say to chase after with the intention of catching it? What he says is to chase after peace with all men. It's very reminiscent of Paul in Romans twelve eighteen that says, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I love the, real, the reality or the realness of this, of what the Bible puts on us. So much as it depends on us, we're to do everything that we can do to be at peace with all men, not just Christians. That can be hard enough, but all people, believers and non-believers, that we're to, to pursue this harmony, to chase after it with all human beings, but not at the expense, not with compromise, as we're pursuing peace. As soon as I find my spot here, pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification or holiness. Purity could be a word that you could use there. So as you're pursuing peace with all men, it's not at the expense of your personal holiness, your personal sanctification. It's not ditching your convictions aside. I am 
this is one of those tensions in the Christian life that is the most difficult thing to find the balance. I feel like it's, it's like walking on a razor's edge. And in my world, I like laugh with the circles of friends that I have. I have super liberal friends from like high school. I have SEAL buddies that I'm not quite sure what category to put them in. They're kind of, they're, they're their own category. Um, conservative in some respects and not conservative in other respects. Then I have like pastor circles of friends. And then, you know, in the advent of Facebook, there's all of these like various groups. So in my Facebook feed, I'll have like something pop up from my SEAL group, right? Followed behind it with like a pastor's group, totally conflicting things. It's like, this is just weird. And sometimes I forget which group I'm in and I, I you know, it comes off weird. And, and, uh, but, but this idea of, of that we're called to genuinely cultivate, nourish, foster genuine relationships with an unbelieving world. This idea of being in the world, yet not of the world. And as we do this, we're to walk in purity. We're to walk uh, honoring the Lord in all things. This is terribly, I mean, if you're doing it, you know what I'm talking about. To be able to be there and, and genuinely have relationships at the same time you're generally trying to honor god and you tend to kind of like to me it's like the balance of like slipping get convicted every now and again like laughing at something that my seal buddy will write it's like oh i shouldn't be laughing at that like like i can't i can't pursue that in my flesh i find that really hilarious but i to honor god i can't do that and 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 i think that the two extremes are in one extreme we see like sort of a, a christians that Go move out to the middle of nowhere like Valley Center and, and become isolationist and, and cut themselves off from the outside world. And they only want to sort of be in Christian circles. Cause if you do that, that's not what the Bible's called us to do. It's, it's called us to be salt in the midst of this world. Now on the other extreme is that you so throw yourself into the world and you have zero convictions about anything. And we see this in a bunch of Christian organizations that started out really on fire for the Lord. And now there's denominations that that nothing is wrong. God is just love. And it doesn't matter what you're doing or what you're not doing. God is love. He's a hippie up there. And he just loves us all. And he doesn't care. And you just live your life. and, And we're not stuffy Christians. We just, that's not what he's asking us to do. He's asking us to live for him totally and completely sold out at the same time to be in this world that is totally against him and there's tension there and I'm not going to even begin to pretend that it's something that's easy. It's a tension and we need each other to cultivate this and we need to be intentional about developing our relationships with the lost world. I once heard when I was in seminary, uh, my school has missions week and I, I love it about the school and this this lady came who was a missionary um, in Spain. She said something that, that will stick with me for the rest of my life. And she was talking about spending 20 years in Spain. And she said that over the course of time, she, she doesn't know of anybody that came to Christ um, during her ministry. But she talked about her faithfulness of, of honoring God and her genuineness of, of uh, developing relationships with Spaniards. And she said, well, what I see in our world today is there's a lot of people that will love on people for the sake of then sharing the gospel. So their love is really superficial. And she said, my aim over my 20 years there was to really develop these relationships so that I developed a genuine love for the people so that because I love them, I desired to witness to them because I loved them so much and they were so lost apart from Christ. And and it's so easy for us to fake genuine relationships. It's so easy for us to say, oh, I have this relationship. You're not really a friendship, but you just want to be able to uh, to use them in some way. Um, I should move on. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. This is, um, there's something beautiful about this. This phrase catches me. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. 
Grace is a word that we use, we throw around. It means a lot to me as an individual, probably why I was so for our name change to Grace Point Church, because grace is probably the most important theological truth we can come to understand. It's overwhelming to understand that we as sinful people have encountered this holy living God not based on anything that we've done, but solely based on what he's done. And it's his grace towards us. And he says, make sure that nobody comes short of the grace of God. Um, Put another way that we're instructed to grow in grace, that we're to cultivate and gain an understanding of what does it mean to be saved by grace. Paul in Romans 5 talks about standing in grace. Um, Our understanding of grace should take a lifetime. Like, we should never be bored with this idea of grace. And then coupled with this, there's a warning. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by by it many defiled. So we're to see to it that we're continuing to grow in grace. We're to see to it that the, the soil of our hearts is... Uh, continually tilled, uh, that there are deep roots there, and that if there's bitterness, that we need to deal with it. We need to get rid of it. I've heard it said that bitterness, everybody's heard it. It's nothing new to me. It's But, but bitterness is like swallowing poison and hoping that the others start dying. Uh, bitterness just hurts yourself. But we see in this it also hurts others because he goes on to say, and by it many defiled. So grace and bitterness are two things that are contagious. If you become a person of grace where you look at people through God's eyes and you love on them and you see that those people out there, wherever you are, are individuals that Christ died for. Christ paid their price. You're just a recipient of that grace and then you begin living a grace-filled life. It will bleed out to others. But if you're a person that has this bitter root of bitterness, it spreads. It's like cancer. You know, if you want to do a tour, um, you go down the hallway after church, step out the door, hang a right turn. Before you get to the gate, turn around, and there's a little flower bed. In that flower bed, there's this big green plant. That plant has been butchered like 30 times in the last 10 years. I cannot kill. Alberto knows we, like this last time, we're like, we got to deal with this. And I think Albert, Albert Jr. went out there with this machete, and he's just like, rah, rah. And like, by the end, there's like, you could see just like, I mean, it was thrashed. I think we might even, I don't know if we, pour, like, we were like, let's kill this thing. Three weeks later, big, beautiful, bushy plant. It's like, we can't kill this thing. Why? Because its roots are so just everywhere, wrapped around the good plants, and I don't, like, don't take this, like, I don't really care about the plant that much, so I don't need, like, I can see John going, well, I can get my truck, and uh, <laughs> I can rip that bad boy out. Like, I'm not, I'm not so much looking to solve the problem, but the, the danger of bitterness, it gets, it, it gets into our hearts, and then the, the roots begin to wrap itself around, like, everything, and it begins to contaminate everything. So the Bible takes bitterness really seriously, that we're to deal with it. And to deal with it, it requires forgiveness, And how do we forgive? Well, you realize how great your sin is and what God has forgiven you of and what he's done for you in Christ. Just last week, we read you, verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against your sin. Well, Jesus did, and he did that for you. And so whatever thing that you're bitter about, you can let it go. Forgive the person. Grow in grace. Verses 16 through 17, the next thing. What he's going to say is, see to it that there's no immorality or godlessness in your life. So these are warnings. And the big question is, I've before I really look at this, um, the question that I've had as I've meditated upon these two verses is a question that keeps coming to mind. What? What things does your Christian life, your following of Christ, make you say no to? 
Are there things in your life that as a result of Christ entering into your life that you've had to say no to certain things? And I would I, I would go on if you, if you can't think of anything that your your relationship with Christ has caused you to say no to certain things, then I would evaluate your relationship with Christ. And so here what Christ says, he says, see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now Esau, what's the deal with Esau? We're going back to the Genesis. We're, we're, we're traveling back in time quite a bit. What does he say about Esau? He says, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, for you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought for it with tears. And so what I see here is, um, this is the exchanging of your life for an impulsive moment. To throw everything away over like instant gratification. Here this guy was hungry. And in his hunger, he threw away his whole inheritance for like a bowl of chili. It wasn't chili, I mean, it was a stew. But there was this impulsive moment. He goes the course of his life. At the very end of his life, he's weeping not for his sin and repentance. He's weeping again because in that impulsive moment, what he wants is that blessing, but he didn't get it, and he never learned his lesson. And I think the author is telling the readers and telling us to have the long view in your relationship with God. How many people have sacrificed years and years of marriage over an impulsive moment? How many have sacrificed careers over an impulsive moment, a a compromise that costs them everything? In our parenting, we should take the long view. Even in practical, I mean, I read this in the paper all the time. You know, my dad's a retired financial advisor, so I, you know, I read a lot of stuff just in that world to communicate with my dad. And and, and so much uh, of of today, um, I think even in today's paper, like the encouragement of young people, like say, hey, don't count on social security. Start saving when you're 18. Start doing these things because that day of retirement is going to come faster than you know it. But if you live impulsively in the the, the gratification of the moment, you're not going to make decisions for the long view. It's little compromises that lead to to, to being way off guard. And the lady who spoke on Thursday night, I mentioned this at Alternatives. Her name is Abby Guess. No, Abby Guess. I did it again. Abby Johnson, which we have an Abby Johnson connected to our church. (laughs) So not Dave Johnson's daughter, but Abby, Abby Johnson... She was um, a regional director for Planned Parenthood for eight years. She was Planned Parenthood's top employee. I forget what year it was. She said that night when she was speaking, um, she said that over her eight years, she was responsible for 23,000 abortions. She tells this horrific story of how she walked away from the industry um, she said that she was asked to facilitate from a new a practitioner that was outside that did the abortions a little bit differently than they did, is that they did a, an abortion by the viewing of an ultra, like an ultrasound machine. And she said that when she did that and she saw the reaction of the baby trying to get away, it just decimated her. And she had us like all in tears. It was, it was overwhelming. And then she looked at us and she said, how... How, you might be wondering, how did I end up as the regional director of Planned Parenthood? I was raised in a good Christian home. Um, she's, and, and she's like, how did I become this monster? She's like, you know what happened? It happened little compromise by little compromise by little compromise that over the course of 15 years, I ended up somewhere where I never thought I would end up. And And it kind of, Grips you. And I think this is what he's saying here. Watch those individual compromises. Don't be like Esau because you're going to end up in a bad place. The little things matter. 
Okay, I got to move along now. Verses 18 through 24, it's a complicated section. I'm not even going to read it again. I want to sort of outline it to you to explain what's being said here, and you can study it on your own. So verses 18 through 21, what's being described is a mountain. The mountain that's being described is Mount Sinai. What is Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is the location where Moses received the commandments. Not the Ten Commandments, all of the commandments. There's 613 commandments um, that we can count in the Mosaic Law. It's the Old Covenant. And so the Old Covenant is being described in verses 18 through 21. Now in verses 22 through 24, a different mountain is being described. It's Mount Zion. Uh, and he, in Mount Zion, he describes the, the giving of a new law. This is the giving of the gospel. This is the new covenant that, that, that this is all of Hebrews. He's been contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. Uh, in Christ, you're a part of the new covenant, and their temptation was to slip back under the old covenant. And in verse 18, he says, for, we, for you did not come to a mountain. He said, you're not a part of Mount Sinai. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. You in Christ are a part of the new covenant, not legalism, but grace. Not earning your salvation, not earning your relationship with God, but having received it through what he has done. Don't look back is what he's pleading. Don't slip away. Don't go back under the old covenant. There's no place for you there. You've received a better covenant, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkling of the blood, which is better than the blood of Abel. And he's going to come with a warning, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And the essence of this is that Christ is speaking Don't drift away. Heed his words. Same warning that we see in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, there's a key word sort of between verses uh, 25 through 28 or 29. I want to sort of give you guys the answer and to show you and then to kind of work backwards. So there's a word shook. We see it in verse... uh, um, Verse 26, and his voice shook the earth. It's quoted, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Uh, Verse 27, uh, that expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. So this word shaken appears a bunch of times. This was like my last aha moment. And so the picture that's being described is imagine you're doing your spring cleaning and you get out your rug and you, you, you take it out and you hang it on whatever you can hang it to make it become like a pinata and you start banging on the, the rug and you see the dust go everywhere and you hit and you hit and you get dust and you get dust and in Valley Center you get dust and dust and dust and, then you, and it's like never ending dust. But eventually, if you keep hitting, the dust will all be removed. And only that which should remain, remains. And in this picture, he's saying to us that since we, as followers of Christ, have participated with Jesus and what he's done, and we have access now, and we are now members enrolled in heaven in this Mount Zion, he he says, listen to the Father who is speaking. And he compares and contrasts the voice of Jesus compared to the prophets. And he says, when the prophets spoke, it was really bad. Imagine how much more terrifying it will be to ignore the voice of the Lord. And he says, then this voice of God is going to basically be, uh, creation will be the rug. And God's voice is going to begin banging on the rug. And in the Old Testament under the prophets, It shook out some stuff. But in verse 26, he says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. 
everything. And this picture of like everything, everything is going to be shaken out. And at the end, the only thing that will remain is that which is not created. The heavenlies. God's kingdom. And he says, in Christ you have access. And hold the course. And because of all the shaking, verse 28, therefore, sort of the conclusion of this whole passage. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken in Christ, you have received this kingdom. So you say, therefore, since you've received this kingdom, there's a concluding everything that we've looked at so far today. He's going to give us our marching orders. And it blows my mind what our marching orders are. Look what it says. Let us show gratitude. Let us be thankful. It's kind of it. And what a verse to go into November with, with Thanksgiving. Like Christians are to be known for being a grateful people. You're going, you're going through suffering. Give thanks. Your world is falling apart. We'll give thanks because you serve a living God that is a consuming fire. Let us show gratitude. Let us have grace by which we may offer to God an acceptable service or worship with reverence and awe. Why would we have reverence and awe? Look how God is described. And I tell you, living in Valley Center has changed how I see this. God is described for our God as a consuming fire. And if we sort of uh, retro-engineer, we work back from that, our God is a consuming fire. So therefore, we should worship him with reverence and awe. And how do we go about worshiping him? We worship him through gratitude, giving him thanks. Fifteen years ago, before I moved to Valley Center, I moved, moved to Valley Center about ten and a half years ago. Ten and a half years ago, you know, our God is a consuming fire. I would look at you and say, oh, man, when I was a kid, we had some great bonfires at the bay or the beach. We'd get like ten pallets, throw a little gas on there. And that was a consuming fire. We would dance around it, and we would have the guys like the knuckleheads like me that would jump over it. And, and I'd be like, yeah, that's a consuming fire. Well, 10 years ago, almost to the day that I read this here, it's the 10-year anniversary of our last fires. And living through those last fires, seeing its snow ash and seeing the all-consuming blaze coming down the mountain and from the backside over here. Mara, during our first service, during the previous fire, she lost her house and she was in her house as her fire was being consumed and she's burned all over her body. Having lived here, when I read consuming fire, it's it's not a bonfire fire that you have control of. This is a raging fire that you can't do anything. You can have all of the government agencies, all of the airplanes, all of the prisoners even on the fire lines. And if a fire is raging, you're not stopping it. You kind of like do the dance and trying to get people evacuated most recently up at Anaheim listening to those firefighters as the whole fire was raging down Anaheim Hills. They're saying, we're not even trying to stop it. We can't stop it. All we're trying to do is to guess where it's going to get the people out because it's a consuming fire and we can't stop it. And the author here says, our God is a consuming fire. And each of us will stand before him. And if you're not in Christ, get in Christ. Give your life to him. It's not about works. It's about believing. Believe in him. He made the sacrifice for you. It was sufficient. It was once and for all. He paid the price so that you wouldn't have to. He was your substitute. He was my substitute. And for those of us who have placed our lives into his hands, we too will stand before this God that is an all-consuming fire. We will give an account, and at the end of your life, he will look at you and he'll say, this is what I gave to you. This is when you were born. These are the gifts. These are the talents. How did you use them? For my glory. And we'll give an account. Now, I don't think it's going to be bad. I don't don't know how it's going to be. Like, I like, I mean, it could be bad. Like, I don't know. Like, God is a consuming fire. We're going to stand before him. And somehow, Christ having paid all, like, what I don't want to be is the guy in 1 Corinthians 3 that says, you entered into heaven, but you're like the guy um, from Back to the Future, you know, that comes out with his hair smoking. Like, you made it in, but there's no reward for you. We're told that if we focus and meditate upon the reality of what Christ did for us, and we understand that we're going to stand before him. 
it will impact how we live our lives today. And as we live our lives today for him, as we stand firm, as we strengthen our grip and go the distance and run the race, we're told that our God gives us crowns and, and like jewels and stuff. I don't even understand how that works. But we're told that we can build an inheritance, a reward in heaven for how we live our lives today, and that should propel us forward. So, Father, we come before you in awe of the being a Valley Center people, having lived through fires here, we all have the very real fear of fires. This time of year, we watch the weather, we watch the wind. We prepare things in our house. We keep our eyes on people that are doing foolish things that might start a fire because we understand the terror of fire. And God, you describe yourself as a consuming fire. And so, Lord, like we make preparations for real fire, we ask that you would help us to make preparations for encountering you, the living God that's described as this consuming fire. If there is any question in any one of our minds about whether we know you or not, Father, I pray that you would help each individual person to come to that place of saving faith. They would lay aside their uh, works of righteousness, their good deeds, anything that falls short of the grace of God. We recognize, Lord, that we bring nothing to the table. Our relationship with you is based totally and completely on what Jesus did. And we thank you for that. And Father, as we walk with you, I pray that you would um, guard our thinking. Lord, it's so easy to slip back under into works and good deeds and trying to earn our merit. Lord, help us to be a people of grace that we would be saved by it, that we would sustain by it, that we would demonstrate it to others. Father, all of these so be it, we ask that you would help us to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, to have you in the forefront of all of our thinking as we go about our days. Help us to have confidence in you. We thank you, Lord. For the love that you've displayed towards us, we thank you, Lord, for your discipline and correction in our life. We long to see the fruit of righteousness pour out of our lives that's not ours, but yours. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.